Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. Uh, the best way to do that is to follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Focus Compound. I uh, updated my picture for the first time in probably over a year, and I lost my blue check mark. So I am re-going oh. through the oh, no. verification process with Twitter. I don't know how long that takes, uh -oh. um, uh, but uh, at Focus the... Compound, mm -hmm. there, I'm in detention you... right now. You and the SEC both. Yeah, that is correct. Game. So yep. what do you think about that? I mean, I'm not surprised that that happens. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that join the party with, you know, throwing mud at them. But as soon as they said, oh, there was nothing approved as it relates to Bitcoin, I immediately thought, okay, this is coming out in a few days. And um, yeah, that's what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. So yeah, we'll see how long I am in detention for until I get my uh blue check mark back. But at Focus Compound is the best place to get access to everything that we push out um into the investing universe. So in today's podcast, Chef, we are going to be talking about a wonderful book that we've both read. And that book mm -hmm. is Dear Chairman by Jeff Graham. Um Warren Buffett likes this book. At one point, Jeff Graham actually sent a or posted a letter, I remember a few years ago, of Buffett uh, praising the book, saying that he read it. Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. And we're going to start at chapter one and work our way through the book and talk about different activist situations. And um, yeah, so for people that want to follow along, if you have a book, uh, dear Chairman, you should definitely pull it out. Uh, hit pause here, pull it out, and go and, yeah, uh, grab it because we'll go through it. So you have the sleeve on yours. I don't because I like yes. the way that the, the books off. look without the sleeve. However, I do really appreciate the cover of this book. I think it's a great visual um, uh, for the book. Um, and we're going to start at chapter one. Like I said, Benjamin Graham versus Northern Pipeline, the birth of modern shareholder activism. But before we jump into you know that, I think it would be great for you, Jeff, to explain who yeah. Benjamin Graham was, why this is a pivotal moment in shareholder activism. This was really one of the first um, you know, instances, as the book says, of shareholder activism. And I want to give a backdrop to why that was the case. What were markets like during this time? Why was this something that was completely unheard of? And then we will jump into Northern Pipeline and the actual situation itself. Sure. Ben Graham was Warren Buffett's uh, teacher at Columbia, his mentor. Uh, Buffett went to work for Graham eventually. Graham started probably the first hedge fund. Um, so it took a percentage of profits and... Um, you know, he did hedge and things like that. So, you know, the first investment partnership that was basically a hedge fund um, started on Wall Street around, I guess, 1914, probably. Um, by the time the Northern Pipeline thing, he is a um, basically a hedge fund manager. It's, I guess, 1927. The story starts, I think, with uh, Northern Pipeline. And, um, you know, he would make a ton of money, uh, I think, get very rich by 29 or something, you know, and then the crash. And then he didn't get paid for several years because he was on an incentive only structure. Um, so it took several years to make back the money. And then in 1934 published the first edition of security analysis, the textbook with David Dodd and um, would go on to do 1940 edition of that, the 1949 intelligent investor, which is Warren Buffett's favorite book on investing has the Mr. Market concept, margin of safety, all that stuff's in it. Um, and the activism stuff uh, is because, you know, he was a pioneer in that, just like he was a pioneer in talking about intrinsic value. And you can see that in, I have a bunch of books that are his kind of uh, 
articles that he published in different journals and stuff. Basically, there used to be these kinds of finance magazines sort of things that were more like scholarly journals almost. Um, and he wrote a lot on those sorts of things, net nets and all that pioneered that kind of concept. And the Northern Pipeline one was where you had something similar to what Buffett will deal with later with Sandboard Map, where you had a company that had more cash and investments than its share price. And Graham figures that out and he pushes for the company to pay out. Um, born Benjamin Grossbaum changed his name allegedly because of um, anti-German feelings in the in the World War One, but possibly for to disguise the Jewish identity there too. Um, and so that factors in only because not mentioned in this book, but I think in his memoirs that he did feel that he was treated um, differently because he was Jewish. That there's some anti-Semitic um, stuff when he dealt with management in this case. So I don't think that's in this chapter, but it is in his memoirs. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, Northern Pipeline, the stock was $65 per share, did $6 in earnings per share, um, and investment securities were worth about $90 per share, right? So take us through how he uh, came across this, how he found it out, right? So back during this time frame, stock market was mainly for speculators, it sounds like. And um, most of price movements came from rumors, um, rumors about, you know, companies selling or buying or a new customer or something like that. Uh, very few people actually did fundamental analysis, which to your point, which mm -hmm. you had just said, Graham was the first person to really talk about this concept of intrinsic value, valuing the business, not thinking about markets, not worrying about all these other rumors. So um, with that in mind, um, he, he came across um, Northern Pipeline, and I thought it was pretty unique how he came across, uh, like what tipped him off, um, uh, that there was something interesting there. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. So this gets into regulation of it and also the antitrust issue. So there was a company called Standard Oil, which was Rockefeller's um, business, which was an integrated um, oil company, controlled a lot of the oil business in the United States and really around the world at the time. And uh, it was broken up by an antitrust case that went to, um, I think it went to the Supreme Court. But anyway, it was decided in like 1911, I think was the actual split up. And that included breaking off eight pipeline companies, which are pipelines that transport oil in different places in the United States. And those would be regulated under the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC. Um, so in one of the reports to the shareholders, like a news report thing, you know, a release, um, the company had in a footnote that the um, figures were taken from a report filed with the ICC. Um, yeah. And so Graham realized that meant he could go to the ICC reading room. Uh, well, he could go to Washington and find the reports of the ICC because the government would have them on hand. You could request them. They would bring them to you, and then um, you could read it. So before Edgar and everything, this is how you got government reports with the SEC reports or anything. Remember, the 1940 Act has lots of SEC requirements and stuff, and yet Edgar... I mean, they're not really putting things up for all companies till like 95, 96. I don't think anything's going up till there's not anything like pre-93 or something, I think, on Edgar. So you're talking about a period of 50 years or something where this is how you got your SEC reports and stuff. And so similar to that, he decided to go and actually read it. Um, just like mm -hmm. Buffett years later would go and just knock on the door of Geico because he found that Graham was the chairman there. Graham figured, okay, I'll just go down there and find out the numbers for myself. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so on page seven... For people that are okay. following along, um, it says under the table were the words taken from their annual report to the commission. And that's what tipped him off, yeah. uh, which you had just quoted. Um, so, yeah, he goes to Washington. And as Jeff Graham writes, it turned out that each of the pipeline companies filed a 20-page annual report to the ICC with very detailed financial statements. The report also contains schedules of employee salaries, capital expenditures, the names and addresses of shareholders. Um, and of particular interest to Benjamin Graham, investment in securities. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, right? He had this epiphany, right? When he saw that in a footnote, he basically said, wow, I didn't realize that uh, companies did this. And if I did not realize that companies did this, that means that other investors probably haven't realized that companies did this. So it's back in that uh, era of information being um, such a commodity, right? And yeah, what did he do? He, like you had said, he went to Washington and uh, he learned a lot about uh, the company. And 
he uh, thought that they could pretty conservatively, without disrupting operations, pay out $90 per share to shareholders, and the stock was currently trading at $65 per share. Yeah. So to explain this, they put out a one-line income statement and a quote from the book, very abbreviated balance sheet. So what was probably happening is shareholders knew the level of total assets and the amount of income and everything. What they didn't know is that it was more an investment company than a pipeline. So they would value pipeline assets at maybe not that high because they figure, okay, this is just the book value of the pipeline that they're seeing, right? If it's just a, not an explained balance sheet. But if it says that it's investment securities and that they're actually, they turn out to be U.S. government bonds, railroad bonds, et cetera, um, then that's very different. So um, that was the key insight that he had. And we should point out, this was not unique to Northern Pipeline. This is an important part of the story. This was true to some degree of all eight pipelines more true of Northern Pipeline than the others. This is really clear when you read Graham, uh, uh, Ben Graham's um, letter in the appendix in Jeff Graham's book. Uh, he has the appendix, all the original letters reprinted. And in that, it's very clear where they discuss more about the fact of that there's other pipelines and what happened between in the last decade or so about how they kept increasing their investment securities and not increasing the business size, exactly like Sanborn Map would be for Buffett, um, you know, more than 30 years later or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he figures this all out. He goes to meet with management. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Well, this is where it starts to get unpleasant. The, the quote, which is quoted in lots of different places, I can read to you, is running a pipeline is a complex and specialized business about which you know very little, but which we have done for a lifetime. You must give us credit for knowing better than you what is best for the company and stockholders. If you don't approve of our policies, may we suggest that you do what... Sound investors do under such circumstances and sell your shares. Correct. So the typical response yes. from, a, from a company, right? When somebody mm -hmm. comes in um, and, and the thing that was interesting about here, though, is that he did stress he's not looking to get involved in operations of the business. This was purely about uh, capital allocation. Um, right. So, and, yeah, to explain, they're debt free. Yeah, they have a huge. This is very similar to the same board map situation. They're debt free and they have a huge amount of investment assets. In fact, more investment assets than anything else, as you'll see in the uh, table that um, Jeff Graham includes. So because of that. Um, wait, actually, I believe that's only in the letter. Is that only in the letter? I think it's only in the letter where he includes the table. Yeah. But anyway, it's in the book, whether it's in the actual chapter or it's in the appendix. Um, and so you can see that's become more of an investment company. But the company is treating it like this has something to do with the operations of the pipeline. Yeah. Where Graham wants it returned. Graham's point in the letter is that shareholders should decide capital allocation decisions, things like returning capital and stuff that management shouldn't be involved with that. And that management shouldn't be and that shareholders shouldn't be involved in the running of the business, but that there's a distinction between the two things. Um, nowadays, maybe people would feel differently and feel that that um, even management should be involved a lot in deciding the right capital levels and all of that, you know? Mm -hmm. So he speaks with management. They, as you had just quoted, that quote about running a pipeline being very complex and that they told him he should just sell his stock. Um, he goes to their annual meeting, right, to bring this up uh, before right. even launching a proxy contest and going that route. And what happens at the annual meeting, Jeff? We're on page nine for people that are following along. Right. And we should mention also there's important details revealed earlier here. Um, Graham has the stockholders list. So the names and addresses of the stockholders of record, which would have been much more important back then, oh, yeah, that's are correct, listed yeah. there, which nowadays when companies, you know, activists wouldn't have that and stuff. So um, that was important that he found that in the report. But so he goes to the annual meeting. Now, the annual meeting is held in... Um, Oil City, which this describes as being, um, you have to go to Pittsburgh first. So this is quite a ways from New York and all the shareholders, obviously, New York shareholders, uh, finance people. Uh, you know, Standard Oil was New York um, offices. And so um, they hold it out in a place where no one would go there. He goes and he wants to make his motion. His motion at this point actually is just to have read into the record his views of things, you know, he's not trying to, um, win the, he's not trying to get directors on the board at this point. What he's trying to do is have his plan basically read into the record. And, um, instead he doesn't get a second because he, he didn't bring someone with him. So there's no one to second the motion. 
He's the only outside shareholder there. This is not an unusual state of affairs, we should point out. Um, if you want to talk to people at a company, go to the annual meeting because only people from the company will be there. No one else will be there, you know? Um, that's how Buffett met Schloss. The two of them basically were some of the only outside shareholders at, um, what was it, the Marshall Wells? Uh, what was the one, the annual meeting that they went to? So, um, so that's what happens here. So he wanted to speak. The chairman said, Mr. Graham, will you please put your request in the form of a motion? Mm -hmm. Graham then made a motion that he be allowed to give his presentation. The chairman asked the room, is there any second to this motion? Uh, but Graham did come by himself. Uh, so there was nobody to second that motion. And then the chairman said, I'm very sorry, but no one seems willing to second your motion. Do I hear a motion to adjourn? And that was basically the end of it. So they mm -hmm. kind of obviously did that on purpose. Um, we should point out too, Jeff, that um, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, they owned a 23% position in right. this company, right? Yes. And Graham had spoken to them about his ideas and they basically told him, hey, look, we don't get involved in the operations of our business. We're just a passive shareholder. Yes. They said it in an odd way. So they were very polite to him. I, I don't know if you have the exact things that they say, but they said it in a way that they didn't want to give him an answer, but that didn't necessarily mean that they weren't open to it to be honest. Um, what they basically said is that their policy was that. And so they weren't, you know, basically they weren't adjusting their policy at that time, but that's not the same thing as saying that they didn't agree with him and stuff. So it was a lot more cordial than his meeting with management. So, um, and that's the key to this. There's a couple keys to this story and why Graham's successful, right? One, there was a lot of pipelines. Two, Rockefeller Foundation holds in all of them. That's important because Graham pushes the ethical angle, right? When he writes the letter to the Rockefeller Foundation, he talks to them about how they're in some ways in the position ethically. He doesn't say they legally and stuff, but ethically, um, there's someone in the position of a trustee there, you know? And that he says two things, basically. One, it's inefficient for taxes for you. So you get less money for the foundation and stuff than you otherwise would. Um, two, you... Um, are harming shareholders who want to sell out. And he gives an example of that they're shareholders who sold out in the last year and they sold out for less than the value of their cash. So this is a very quiet way of doing it, but it is a shaming campaign in a sense. But it's not shaming of the management, who might be shameless in this case, but shaming of the Rockefeller Foundation, the potential for shaming them privately. Because look, the Rockefeller Foundation is going to be concerned about their reputation. They're going to be concerned about all that. That is an angle that someone would write this story, right? The story that someone wants to write is not that Ben Graham is in a fight with one pipeline company. It would be, is the Rockefeller Foundation, are all their pipelines selling for less than they otherwise would be? Or is everybody harmed by this? All that stuff. You know, they're the big name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, he goes to the annual meeting, is not successful. They kind of played games with him there. He goes back to New York City. Um, and then what does he, uh, do from there? Well, so this time he wants to get on, uh, the board. He wants to secure board seats. Now he wants to secure a minority of the board. He does not want a majority. Um, and so to explain this, we have to talk about proxy fights and, and Jeff Graham gets into this, but a proxy is, so you don't have to appear in person at the annual meeting. Lots of things are done online now, but it works much the same way back then because these people obviously didn't all go to Oil City and vote their shares. So you provide a proxy, but unlike a ballot that you cast on election day in a campaign where you only need to cast it once, in this case, it could be cast in, you know, as many times as you want because one can supersede the next one, sort of like a will or something, a later dated one supersedes it. So for that reason, um, that's important because as they Graham talks about in his memoirs, you know, there was a lot of cases where someone um, had switched their proxy from management thinking that they had it to um, Graham's slate. And, you know, it's each of them meet them and talk to them and try to convince them to fill out the proxy. So it's kind of like two ballots that they have there. And that's how these fights actually happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On page 11, um, when they were counting the votes, uh, management said he's an old friend and I bought him lunch when he gave me his proxy. Um, but he later changed the proxy and, and actually voted with Graham. So yeah, that, that can happen at times. Um, so he goes and he meets with a bunch of shareholders. He pitches his idea. He did not have full support from 
the foundation. So we had to go and get votes from every other shareholder, basically. Right. So what happened is actually that they were elected a minority of the board. So he ran for two board seats. He got that. And then what happened is that right after the meeting, within weeks, it says in the in the book, but it happened, I believe, instantaneously. I think that there's footnotes. You know, you can look at the footnotes in uh, Jeff Graham's book. And I believe from the footnotes and some other things I know about this story, we believe the Rockefeller Foundation told them immediately, like at the annual meeting or something, that they were in favor of this plan, that although they were voting uh, with them, in reality, they wanted them to adopt this plan. So what happened was they got a minority of the board, but that effectively allowed them to accomplish the things that they would have if they had a majority, because all Graham wanted to do was this plan. Management got to stay in place, but if they distribute the cash to shareholders. Um, and this avoided all the embarrassment and stuff because Rockefeller Foundation didn't have to actually vote against management. They just told them, and um, management didn't actually get, have to get kicked out. They just adopted the plan that Graham would have had, so everyone comes away happy in that respect. I don't know if management was that happy, but they got to keep their job and all that. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there were so many situations like this uh, that were more common back in those days? Was it because um, these investments weren't as picked over as much? Was it because this was a new concept of, you know, um, forcing companies to uh, recapitalize and return cash to shareholders? I mean, you just don't see opportunities like that today where you could buy a stock for $65 a share and a company could immediately redistribute um, $90 per share. And if you do see it, then there's probably, um, you know, processes in place that would prevent you from being able to effectively do what Benjamin Graham did. Maybe. I don't know that I couldn't have done the same thing in the case of George Risk. I don't know that the family would have been opposed to paying out and everything. I don't know that anyone's ever tried. Um, so, I mean, if someone has a large ownership, I mean, George Risk sold for two thirds or something of the value of their cash and stuff, had a business that was all on its own for probably a there's probably on average a couple of years or something. It's very illiquid, but you know, back then all stocks are pretty illiquid and not all stocks. I mean, there was like our, you know, RCA and stuff maybe weren't, but um, a lot of stocks by today's standards would be pretty illiquid. They traded big blocks and stuff. So um, I think that one reason, one reason even going back then is the dividend policy. So this, because they were all spinoffs, I think is a big factor in it that they built up this cash. So they didn't reveal this fact. And back then they used to pay out dividends a lot. In fact, one of the early things for what a board could get in trouble with is refusing to pay dividends. Nowadays, it would seem strange, but like in the early legal cases, some of it was that uh, boards could be, you know, directors could be acting um, not in the interest of shareholders and stuff if they had lots of earnings and chose not to pay dividends. Where today I think a court would be like, well, that that's fine. You can do that. Lots of stocks do that. But early on, that was one of the considered one of the worst ways that you could treat shareholders. So here it was that they didn't understand, right? Same as Sanborn Map. People didn't really understand. Um, the other possibility is, look, if this exists or something would be written up on Value Investors Club right today and people would be talking about it. Um, and this lasted for about 10, 12 years or something from the point at which it probably became quite valuable in terms of if you just look, trying to do the math on when it probably was pretty high amount of investment securities per share and everything till when Graham got the distribution. Um, but again, it did exist in the Sanborn map example and Buffett was able to get them to pay out. And like I said, it has existed in other cases too. I mean, in, in small companies and stuff, I've seen it and just no one to my knowledge has tried. Um, you know, Sanborn map, Buffett could get a lot of stock and everything because it didn't have a controlling shareholder like this. This did have Rockefeller Foundation and no one ever got rid of management and stuff. So I don't, you need someone like willing to do it, I would say. And that's what I was going to ask you, right? I mean, uh, on page 13, Jeff Graham, he writes that until Benjamin Graham started sniffling around, uh, sniffing around, Northern Pipeline's management was accountable to nobody. The company's pile of cash and securities gave its managers a huge cushion that protected their jobs and the income and status that came with them. Without any pressure to mind the shareholders, management chose not to advertise the company's strong financial position to anyone outside of the luxurious confines of the standard oil building. So I do sometimes yeah. wonder, is it really like... Um, are they being bad actors in the sense of like, we do not want to do this because this is actually in our own self-interest and better for us? Or is it sometimes companies just don't realize that they should be doing this, they could be doing this, this is, could be a, a great way to maximize value, almost like they're just incompetent? I don't think they care about the shareholders. I don't think it's something that ever occurred to them. What happened here yeah. with Graham, and it happens with Buffett with Sanborn Map, right, is an attitude issue. 
Graham genuinely yep. believes, and I think uh, Jeff Graham gets into this and in talking about the different ones. This is not like Icon. Graham, if you read his books, Intelligent Investor, he dedicates space to talking about relationship between management and shareholders. He, it's a clear thing, even in just talking about people's much more so than others would talking about things other than just scams and stuff about what the relationship is and why basically saying that shareholders need to be more active and that it's their own fault that they aren't active and that management behaves the way it does. Their feeling was, look, they're not accountable to anybody for it. So why bother? Um, Mm -hmm. Now what they're doing, I would say is also true. Like, I mean, the best way to, one of the best ways to protect yourself um, to keep yourself entrenched is not to disclose a lot about the cheapness of your stock, about the quality of your stock, to downplay that in some ways. Additional disclosures are one of the biggest risks to companies that they'll be raided and stuff. And so that's what they want to avoid. Um, you see a lot of it in industries where people can comp one against another. And I don't think that's an accident. That's because they can figure those things out even if the company doesn't disclose it. There's lots of niche companies and stuff, which probably would be cheap too, but no one can do the same calculation as, look, on a barrel of oil equivalent, this thing is super cheap compared to all of its peers. So activists and raiders and stuff go after things that they can tell on the disclosures are, um, you know, are cheap. And so they they didn't know that in this case, right? So people didn't go after it that way. Um, Graham was also willing to be an activist and was pooling some money so that he wasn't a super small investor that way. Um I think he was one of the few people who was enterprising enough, intelligent enough, principled enough, and most importantly, probably did not care about the social aspect of it. So there were probably other people who had about as much money as he had, even individually. His fund wasn't huge. So they could do that. They could understand it. They could go look for it and do their best, right? But they wouldn't want to because of the social aspect of it. Right. I think that's the thing that gets downplayed a lot is that a lot of times the ties between the directors and stuff are social. And that gets talked about in this book near the end more than up here at the beginning. But I think it's very important that Graham was sort of a, um, stood apart from a lot of Wall Street and stuff. And so that's an important part of this story. I don't think a lot of other people would want to do it. Um, so why draw a lot of unwanted attention to yourself? Get a reputation for being, um, a problem investor. I mean, when they talk about here, um, they're actually referring to someone who partnered up with Graham on this investment. But, you know, the directors say, look, this guy's going to be a nuisance. So they, they, they see it from that perspective, from the social aspect of it. And also they underestimate what's about to happen because they don't realize they're dealing with Ben Graham. If they're dealing with someone else, they think this isn't going to be a problem. But they were dealing with Graham. And so, you know. He's not going to back down from mm-hmm. this sort of thing. You know, it is very, very yeah, similar. Jeff, yeah. He added some context to okay. what that was like, uh, because from his memoirs, Ben Graham had said in the early days, the business of Wall Street was largely a gentleman's game played by an elaborate set of rules. One of the basic rules was no poaching on the other man's preserve. Um, and he basically said that, you know, true to Ben Graham's form, he didn't, you know, play by the quote unquote basic rules. Yeah. And so um, you have all of that stuff. And then the other stuff you have, I would say also, I, I think, you know, Graham would have tried to do this quietly through the um, Rockefeller Foundation and everything. But what often happens in these proxy fights or these sorts of campaigns, right, is then they um, get annoyed with each other, the two sides, right? And so then it can become that their reactions are because of the interactions that they had earlier. And that's why I brought up the anti-Semitism thing and stuff. See, then not having a second and all that stuff, I don't know what the purpose is of what the company thought that would achieve, right? They might have thought it would achieve something, but it's interesting to think from the perspective of what were they thinking in the case of the, the vote out in Oil City, right? Do they think he would go away? Did they research him? Did they understand who Ben Graham was? Now, Ben Graham wasn't super famous at this point at all, but... I read some newspaper articles from the time and stuff that I was able to find covering some Northern Pipeline stuff. You know, they would have known that he was, you know, he'd only been on Wall Street for a decade and a half or whatever, was quite young, 
but he they knew he was a professional investor and he was doing this. This was not someone who was, you know, doing this just to make noise and stuff. He was doing it to make money. Um, they may have thought he would be embarrassed about it and stuff, go away, not say anything about it. But if they didn't think that that's what the reaction would be, then that was a huge mistake, you know? And so there's stories in the book later that we'll get to. Like there's one story where, you know, a, a company is, they're voted to um, uh, change something about the company, right? So there's, they actually have a vote and the vote would say, you know, de-stagger the board or redeem a poison pill or whatever, but it's not binding and stuff. So they just ignore it. And then the company doesn't really realize later why they're losing the vote, you know, but they it's because they had a vote and then they ignored what was happening here. They may not realize why Graham is going after them so hard, but after the incident in Oil City, they shouldn't be surprised, right? So that is also what can happen, unfortunately, in these situations is if it can, can become personal that way and it can escalate from that. Because they might have thought that that would stop it for some reason. I don't know why they would think that, but it's possible. That's the part that's always baffling to me. I don't understand, especially as him being one of the largest stockholders and being able to see this all the way through. What's the point of just completely pulling like a game like that, right? Like that's probably just going to piss him off and make him see it all the way through. Yeah, but it is something to do. If you don't have a lot of choices, this is something, right? We got to do something. This is something. And it does, it is a win psychologically for you, right? Although in the long term, it might not be good. If you start to think in terms of, like I said, they said, you know, not about Graham, but about someone else working with him, that he was a nuisance. If their thought is like, well, we really showed him and stuff um, because we were able to do that, you know. But remember, he just wanted to read a, a statement for the record at that meeting and stuff. So um, it worked out okay for them in the sense that he only wanted a minority of the board and everything, and it didn't get much worse that way. They basically got reprimanded by the Rockefeller Foundation and, and privately and stuff. Um, so it might have worked, I guess. I mean, we won't hear all the stories of the times where people went part of the way and then backed off because they didn't want to face the um, social costs of it and stuff, you know? Um, that might be it. There just also might have been no one there. I mean, if, if he had brought a second, it might have been fine and everything. It's just that there also might have been no one there willing to break ranks and second it. Um, it is interesting, though, because you do wonder, like, okay, well, actually, that's a really good opportunity. Because they have this chance where, oh, you need a second, Mr. Graham, you know, and then someone provides it and stuff so you can read into the record and everything. That might have been better, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I just wonder how much groupthink happens like in situations like this, you know, whereas um, maybe there were people on that board that agreed with him and for whatever reason, you know, didn't want to step out of rank, you know, to what you had just said. Yeah. Um, but really what this does is it just draws everything out, probably just more um, lack of focus for them. It's a nuisance, right? Spend more money. I just I wonder why sometimes uh, they take that approach. Yeah, I don't think that the that there's people on the board that would have agreed with him, but obviously there's people with um, the Rockefeller Foundation that did and then didn't express it. So that is one of the other things too, right, is that people may not express things in, publicly. That's also the thing with the proxy vote, right? Someone voted with the guy when he talked to him in person and then didn't later. That's very common, obviously. You know, I mean, if you sit across from someone to get them to sign papers to do a deal to to sell something you're selling something door to door and stuff right um you probably get a lot of people to say okay i'll buy that but if you then give them 72 hours to just cancel it without seeing you again probably a lot of people do cancel it um so you know same sort of thing you may overestimate your support if you're meeting face to face with people you know and everything um so there's always that aspect of it i doubt that there was a lot of people telling them what they were doing was wrong or anything i think the other factor here, though, like I said, is there was eight pipelines and everything, and so the pressure would be that all of them would shift to that eventually. As long as they hadn't done that yet, you you know, you think it's fine. I think that's always the case, is that you're not... If there's others who are doing other companies and other boards and studying the same thing you are, I don't think you're worried about it. But once they start doing it, it becomes like a, a drumbeat where you switch that way. It's a lot of times when we talk about Japan and stuff today. It's a lot like... it corporate governance stuff was in the United States 
back then, you know, whether it was the twenties or the forties or whatever. Um, so it was a lot more conventional and, uh, but that does mean that things can change quickly because once some of them change, then everyone goes, Oh, well, this is the new thing that we're, that we should move in step with. Right. Cause there's not a lot of independent thing. I don't know that Northern pipeline had a lot of independent thinking from the other pipelines. I don't think they had some strong principle. There's no indication I've ever read that they had a strong principle thing. We need that money. We shouldn't give this back. This is really important. We want to do something with it. Anything. I don't think they had a real opposition to it. It was just a knee jerk reaction to oppose anything from uh, outsiders. So somebody had actually tweeted out uh, or tweeted in a uh, question because I okay. did tweet out that we were going to go over this and, uh, Somebody asked, where did the execs that declined to recognize Mr. Graham at the meeting on a technicality end up years later? Do you have any... Uh, I do not know anything about that. Knowledge of that? Nope. Yeah. Um, most of this is sourced from the same few things. Um, there is some that comes from some other... Like, this chapter is really good in um, in uh, Dear Chairman. Uh, and you don't get much more by reading the memoirs. Um, we do know some of it about, we know their names and stuff, the Bushnells. Um, but I don't know a lot more than that. So I don't know what happened to them and stuff. I mean, that's the other thing. We'll get to some stories where they're famous people on the board, but this is going to be a lot of nobodies for the most part on the boards. That's kind of part of the thing about how a board works and everything and, and why it works the way it does sometimes, I think is that there's there's it's a group and also they don't feel a lot of reputation on the line personally for them that that's the problem here with graham i think it's a problem later we'll see perot um i think you know buffett at what we're going to see buffett with american express but buffett at sanborn map is the same sort of thing and stuff and even some of the other activists who say it's a good idea to be tough in one situation because that'll play over to the next they are often more concerned with how they appear and how this will mean for the next time that they deal with this situation Whereas the company may be a lot less concerned with that, um, right? Because the company is a group who's working together on this. They're usually less well-known and less worried about what this means for their um, reputation and everything. In this story, I really think it's Graham and the Rockefeller Foundation who are the most concerned about what this means in terms of the actual principles of what they're dealing with and what it means like longer term because they're, they, this is kind of a policy thing. What's the right policy to have? Graham is worried long-term about what to do in these situations and what's right and wrong that way. And I think the Rockefeller Foundation is too. I don't, I just don't think that there's some strong opposition from the company to this. I think they're just not thinking in those same terms. Um, so I don't think there was ever a like, we're right and you're wrong on that thing. Somebody also tweeted, in chapter one, Graham works to reallocate spare cash equivalents as a special dividend back to shareholders. How is the determination best made that that is the appropriate course of action versus that of reinvestment into the business with new and unproven CapEx slash COGS slash SG&A? So basically, right. how do you determine that uh, it's it's better to you know dip it in and out um, as opposed to just reinvesting it back into the business? Here's the funny thing about Northern Pipeline. I don't know that much about its specific situation here because it doesn't go a lot into the business, right? But I know a little bit about the situation of the different pipelines that were spun off from Standard Oil. Um, they had no realistic way to ever spend the money. The companies are split off from each other so that they weren't all combined that way, but they're really like one-off. They're essentially like one-off monopolies, like toll roads in each location. Um, that's what we're really dealing with here. So it's as if you took AT&T or something and broke it up into the, the baby bells and then you said, oh, we're going to spend a lot of money and stuff. I mean, eventually some of them did merge with other things to do telecom things and stuff. Maybe these companies could use the money from that to get involved in um, other oil things. But these were not the only companies that were split off from Standard Oil. Um, and so I think realistically in this case, there would have only been a discussion of a dividend or a self-tender thing. And that would have been so rare in those days. That's what Buffett did, is he did an exchange of the um, stock, uh, of the investment securities for the stock in the case of Sanborn Map. It's also similar to what uh, Pritzker did with, um, uh, Jay Pritzker did with uh, Rockwood. So those were all similar situations. I mean, in that case, it was Cocoa instead of um, uh, investment securities. But all three companies had similar situations that way, and it would have been the taxes that were a major factor in it. I don't know that realistically Graham could have considered other things to do. What is it with the dichotomy of uh, boards where you have uh, management on the board 
um, and there's really no no one there that's actually like regulating and making sure that they're doing everything that is in the best interest for shareholders. Well, let's see. Near the end of this chapter, I believe, we have judges in their own cause, right? Is the subheading that you have for this in um, Dear Chairman. And so that has an explanation of that. Um, I think, here's the thing. I mean, back then, they were largely, originally the directors, meant to be representatives of major shareholders to represent their interests. So like agents of major shareholders. What happened is that it then broke down into uh, more and more uh, diffuse ownership, right? And so we have more ownership by the general public, and then they're not being involved in the same way. But, you know, earlier, like I think we talked about Beaver Coal or something on this podcast, you know, that was created to settle an issue between major financiers about, you know, they couldn't agree on what was a fair price and whatever things. And so they're basically, I mean, now it's been split up into different people, but it was three large groups that had tried to extract value somehow. How do we have a fair settlement between us and stuff? And so create this trust and have it go on and everything. Um, with shareholders, you just be like, just sell it or something, right? Shareholders, you know, they're not going to take contingent value rights and trusts and whatever things. Um, so I think that it's the small owners small absentee owners and stuff versus someone who's putting a representative on the board. Um, we've talked about the book, The New Financial Capitalists. The financial capitalists they're referring to in the first place are the people who put people on the boards prior to the Northern Pipeline type stuff. What's happening with Northern Pipeline is this is a shift because you know the Rockefeller Foundation is not Standard Oil, so it's less involved in everything. And so we're starting to get into where it's Wall Street investment firms, you know, operators and stuff, and individual shareholders and not just big um, owners of things who are involved in the founding of it and whatever. So it used to be more that they were big owners who were like sponsors and everything. So if you want to compare them to private equity firms, VC firms, whatever you want to compare them to, that's what used to be having representation on the board. And then later it ended up that the representatives on the board were people who didn't have much to do with the shareholders. Um, you know, so there is a, disconnect between them but obviously when you have a director on the board who is a representative of major shareholders then the board itself is more representative of shareholders that way you know so like after a bankruptcy or something if whoever owns a lot of the debt gets to name someone to the board then at least at first the board is very representative of shareholders at least major shareholders over time it might change and stuff you know and here it had been like i said a decade and a half or something from the breakup i mean this went on over a long period of time it took a while for them to build up the assets that Graham was seeing there, and the company was moving more and more away from what we saw early on. So I think that often happens. At first, the directors might be very, um, at least of the major shareholders representative of them, and then over a long period of time, it changes. Mm -hmm. What is the role of a board to you? Uh, especially, you know, we talk about Northern Pipeline, the people that were on the board there, and uh, what they were doing clearly wasn't uh, with the shareholders in mind. Um, but what is the role? I mean, everyone has, you know, this cop-out answer we talked about in the last podcast, how, you know, you asked Buffett about, oh, does shrinking the business, you know, make sense? And, you know, a lot of times people have this cop-out answer. Oh, yeah, maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe it does. But you had said that, you know, questions like that really fire the neurons in Buffett's brain and he has to really engage with it. I'm kind of curious. I mean, what is the role of a board um, to you? And I guess how was Northern Pipeline different from that view pre-Ben Graham? Um, I would say, let's see. Um, we can see directly where Graham talks about it, um, which might be helpful. Um, this is a good one that's helpful near the end. We believe we what may... What page are you on for people listening? This is page 207. It's the appendix of the original letter. We believe we may point out without impropriety that the initiative in this direction should probably come from the shareholders rather than the management. This is true both for legal and practical reasons. The determination of whether capital not needed in a business is to remain there or be withdrawn should be made in the first instance by the owners of the capital rather than by those who are administering same. So that makes it very clear what Graham's views are on this, and it's similar to Buffett. And part of that is, you know... Buffett's upbringing and stuff, but the other part of that is literally Buffett getting this from Graham. So Buffett always talks about stewardship, right? 
So if we go back to what that means, stewardship and everything, what's a steward, right? So a steward is basically, in olden days, there'd be people who owned land, um, barons and counts and dukes and things, but they didn't administer the land themselves just because you were the count of whatever. I mean, you actually knew how to run things and have the cattle herds the right way and collect the taxes and everything. So you had a steward. And that's what he's talking about here. The person, the manager who administers it is not necessarily the person who owns it. An owner is not necessarily best at administering something, but the owner is still the one who has to make decisions about those things. The steward doesn't sell off land, for instance, right? So decisions about that, the capital, are things that need to be made by owners. And that's Graham's view of it. I think over time, that has changed. Um, that kind of view has changed because people think less and less about a stock as ownership in a business, even value investors. Um, I don't think they think the way that Graham did and the way that Buffett did. You know, Graham talks a lot about um, investing is uh, most intelligent when it's most businesslike. And I don't think that most people really think of, they, they may think of business quality and everything, but I don't think they think like owners in making their decisions. Um, and I think that's mostly, to some extent, that was mutual funds and stuff, but the big thing is index funds have changed that. So, um, you know, I think people think about it in terms of getting a premium, you know, um, in a takeover, you know, in a, in a merger situation, you know, selling the company, putting it in play, stuff like that. I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot throughout this book, that the big thing in the United States that you can do, activism, is you can put a company in play, right? That's like the big thing that it actually can accomplish a lot of the times. If you go activist on a cheap stock, a lot of times what really ends up happening is that the company gets sold to somebody, whether that's for the best or not. But it does get a bump up in the stock price immediately, even if it's not uh, bringing up to the intrinsic value of what it would eventually be worth. Um, so I think it was a, an attitude that Graham had and it's an attitude that I would share on that point that I don't think that managers are the best people to decide on the amount of capital and stuff that way. Um, you can see that where Buffett makes decisions for managers. He's even talked about how managers shouldn't set prices if it's the only thing that they have. Um, and he's across a more diverse um, set of businesses and stuff. And so you wonder why that is. I think, you know, they would always prefer to have the capital. So they're not the best ones to decide on the issues of capital, obviously. Um, the other purpose of the board, obviously, is to decide who manages it, um, which is the most important one in terms of the actual outcome. You know, mostly what a board really does in today is uh, when there's not a king, it picks the next king. You know, it's only really just an interregnum sort of thing. It it, it just makes decisions once in a while to select someone who then will not only reshape the company, but if they stay around long enough, will reshape the board and everything, and really is in charge of everything and and takes the place in a whole different direction. So not making a big mistake in terms of who to make the next leader of the company is probably the biggest function of a board um, in terms of what they actually practically do. How has that changed over the years? Um, well, I mean, this book does a good job of tracing it. I would say, well, there's a few things that changed. Um, I mean, I think the biggest difference is the passivity of the investors in it. So that's what I'm talking about, the index funds and stuff, and the high turnover, both. So I think that that's the biggest factor. I think, like I said, I mean, I really think that the if a board's going to get in trouble and stuff, I mean, they can do things wrong. They can actually do criminal and fraudulent things and stuff, and maybe we hear some stories about that in um, the world of you know tech startups and things like that, right? The SPAC world and all that. But generally what we're talking about really is that I think since the 80s or so, they view it as their job is to get the best price for the company in an auction. And I think as long as you do that, there's not much else that you're ever going to get blamed for doing wrong. So we held a good auction and we got the best price available at the time. No one's going to blame you. Um, unless you do things actively bad, like in terms of morally, very bad. But those would be bad if you were on a board or not. You know, if you're like, committing fraud or wiretapping people or whatever, then yes, that's bad. And it gets written up, but it would be written up if you were bored or anything else, you know? Yeah. That's what I would say the big difference is since the takeover era and stuff of that, it's basically to hold an auction is what the board's ultimate responsibility is in terms of courts and stuff. Yeah. How was this investment in this, uh, you know, company? I mean, how did that, uh, 
affect Ben Graham's career, if at all, right? He went on to do other situations as well. Would you describe this as a pivotal moment in his career? Yes. Um, I think it was a pivotal moment because it probably made him think more about this kind of stuff. Um, it, certainly, he was not overly fond of management throughout his career. Um, he didn't believe in the average investor talking to management and stuff, but he did write a lot about um, shareholders doing more to um, get management to do what's right. Um, so I think it was important that way, and it certainly raised his profile and everything. But I think it just got him thinking more in terms of um, the principles of overall theoretical sorts of things that he might not otherwise. But, you know, he thought about that pretty much from the beginning. I mean, that was just his mindset, you know? He was very much that kind of person thinking about it. And so I'm not sure that this would be terribly different. Um, I think it gave him a certain idea of the reality of it. Um, and so it, there might have been more of a clash between the reality and the uh, the theory of what he thought was right. But Ben Graham wasn't terribly cynical, you know? So um, even though he had this experience this way, I think he'd do it again and stuff, you know? Like, I mean, um, he certainly didn't think that they were acting right in what they were doing, but that wouldn't stop him. Um, a lot of other people, most people would be much more cynical after an experience like this than he was. Um, so, you know, he green mail didn't exist at that time, but there's no way that, that you could green mail Ben Graham, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, I don't, you know, we'll see later in the book people who are more cynical, and I think they were more cynical from the beginning than Ben Graham. Meaning they didn't think what they were actually proposing was going to be the likely outcome, and they could receive green mail in between, put the company in play, something like that. What do you mean when you say that from like yeah, a cynical perspective? That's possible, sure. But the other thing is Graham had a, a lot of people would say it was a really bad experience, just like Buffett had with Sanborn Map in terms of how difficult it was like I said, I mean, it can be frustrating for someone. It's on why did the company give him as much trouble as it did? Um, he had to go out there and had the experience that he did with the annual meeting. He had an experience that was unpleasant in terms of dealing with them face to face. And yet, I don't know that it was ever explained to him what principled reason they were doing to do what they were doing, whereas he had one and he could explain to the Rockefeller Foundation and everything. So. I think um, a lot of people would say, oh, Wall Street is all rotten and stuff and just stay away from it and don't get involved in that kind of thing and the game's all rigged and all that kind of stuff. It's a gentleman's club. It's a boy's club and whatever. Um, I think he would just keep doing stuff if he felt that way. Um, Buffett is a little more flexible of mind on that kind of stuff, certainly willing more to compromise to for his psychological well-being and stuff, I think, than Graham. Um, so, but they're both a little bit in that category compared to most of the people we'll read about. So, um, yeah, I think that that's what I mean by that he wasn't cynical. He wasn't a cynical person from the beginning, and he remained not a cynical person in terms of even if he goes up against those things. I don't think that people's experience in these kinds of things usually changes their personality terribly. If you're a person who sees the worst in people and stuff and in systems from a young age, you probably still believe that even if you go up against corrupt systems and stuff. And if you're a person who thinks you can change those things or should try to or whatever, I think you still believe that even when you face the same situation. I think, you know, you're not going to change when you're 30 years old or something on your attitudes about that. Um, so I think if we explain the difference between Icon and Graham and stuff, it was personality things that you could have seen when they were in college, not things that happened because of their experience on Wall Street. Interesting. What are some of those differences? I mean, um, we're going to get into Carl Icahn on this book, so I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but... Graham wasn't that interested in making money. He was interested in um, talking to the average person and creating an outcome for them through creating a profession, basically, that legitimized investing in stocks. Um and got them a kind of outcome. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, I think he literally compared it sometimes to medicine, 
which I think would be a good comparison. His goal was to create something where security analysts, professional money managers and stuff thought of themselves the way that doctors think of themselves. Um, now, I think it was realistic about it. So these are not heroes and life-saving people and whatever that are right all the time. They kill a lot of people. But they, on the numbers and stuff based on evidence, are trying to do the best that they can and learning about it as a craft um, and don't believe that they're infallible, but neither do they turn off their brains. They're trying to learn and to do best practices all the time with that. And so I think he wasn't interested in making a lot of money in ways that the average person couldn't or that in ways that couldn't be replicated by teaching other people. Like Warren Buffett might be able to copy some things that Ben Graham did and even to exceed it. But I think what he was looking for is more, can I create a system that people can copy, the average person can copy, and that the average security analyst, as they were called at the time and stuff, um, could see what I'm doing and do similar work, right? And so I think that's very different from what some other people might think. I think Icon, you know, we'll get into him when we get towards those kinds of things he, he has talked about in this book and stuff, um, is... I think his thing was just arbitrage, you know, that there's just different kinds of arbitrage, but I think his approach is always arbitrage based in terms of that. And for him personally in doing it. Um, so I think it's just seeing different opportunities and taking advantage of them that way. I don't think Graham was interested in that. Um, I, in fact, I think that seeing a one-off opportunity like that might make him money, but the problem is, well, that's an anomaly that can't, I can't teach people how to benefit from that, right? Like, I see this one-off thing here. I can go in there. I can change things. And he did in his fund. I mean, he did some sort of, like, controller influence or whatever things. You know, if people look at what, because there's, you can find um, online some things about what holdings they had and everything. And there's other ways to find it. You can see that they did, in their top holdings and stuff, have more stuff that reflects what the Buffett partnership would do too. It wasn't all just passive net nets by number. It was mostly like passive net nets and stuff, but a lot of the biggest positions weren't. So, um, but I think the ideas of the net nets and stuff was things that you could actually tell people and that they could practice for themselves. And that was what he was most interested in is how to basically how to get rid of all of the fluff and nonsense in, um, investing, you know, um, and to demystify it from all that stuff to being something that um, people could do with the same way that they could do other things in their life. You know, I mean, the I'm sure it's mentioned in this book that the subtitle for Intelligent Investor, or when Graham was actually the one doing it, was just a, a book of practical counsel. Um, <clears throat> he didn't say you can be a stock market genius, right? Which is a great book, but it's not a great title for that. Um, and so Graham had this incredibly boring book that way. Security analysis, which is actually my favorite of the books that he did, um, 1940 edition is a textbook. It is a legitimate textbook that you could teach whether you were teaching in a class or not. And it is something that you would be appropriate, similar to medicine and law and stuff about, you know, what you should be doing as standards and stuff. So, I mean, I think he had standards for his own behavior and for practices that people could repeat in situations based on process and not just trying to take advantage of individual situations. I think it was extremely different than most hedge fund managers. Um, it, it, I don't think hedge funds usually attract the same people as like what Ben Graham was or Warren Buffett, but. Well, cool. Well, next um, chapter will be chapter two that we will go over in the next podcast when we revisit this series, which will be, we're going to do one chapter a week. Uh, Robert Young versus New York Central. And I love the opening sentence. Uh, which I will read right here just to cue it up. In 1938, Robert R. Young, a hard-charging Texan who often rallied against Wall Street's, in quote, goddamn bankers, found himself in a bitter fight for control of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, any other thoughts or final takeaways, Jeff, from Ben Graham and Northern Pipeline? Anything that you want to hit on that we didn't talk about? Yeah. So this book, Dear Chairman, is in print. You can buy it on Amazon and everything. Um, the only other things that make even slight mention of it would be things that you've read in Buffett biography type stuff. Um, this is the best source for the Northern Pipeline stuff because you're going to spend like $100 or something to get memoirs, Ben Graham's memoirs. Um, and it's a small section of that. I mean, mm -hmm. so that book's been out of print forever. So this is the way to get the information if you want it. Well, I feel very honored that you're sending me a copy of Ben Graham's memoirs <laughs> and they're in transit right now. 
So thank you very much. And people should definitely go and try to find that book as well. I mean, what's the best way to find that eBay probably? Uh, I don't know. I mean, honestly, if I had copies and stuff, I would, I've sold copies before and bought them back and stuff. Um, I don't know that I want to pay a hundred dollars something for a book. Sometimes, you know, the market, it comes down in price and whatever, and you can get it. So you can look out for it. I mean, I think most people will be disappointed by that book. Um, cause it's not what they want. I mean, I think, um, Jeff Graham mentions that, that there's more quotations from like classical authors and stuff in that than things about stock things. There are a few interesting ones. There's the Missouri, Kansas and Texas one. Um, the, DuPont one, which we talked about a little bit with Jacob McDonough because DuPont was a big owner of GM. So that was an arbitrage situation. And um, this one with Northern Pipeline. There's not a lot else that's about any of that stuff. There's a lot more about Ben Graham as a person that you can get a real feel for his personality and stuff, I think, his psychology. But I don't think that there's a lot um, that would interest in investing people in it. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompounding.com or go to Focus Compounding and click that Invest With Us tab uh, to get more information on that. All of the information is in the description below. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.